while the Golaxons are off on vacation, we're going to be going through 2nd and 3rd John together while they're gone for these next couple of weeks. This spring, Josh is going to be preaching through 1st John, and 2nd John and 3rd John, I think, function very well as an introduction to some of the topics that we're going to see brought up in 1st John. All three letters were written in the late 1st century by the Apostle John, who is the brother of James, which is great. Uh, John was also the author of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. So all three, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were written by John during a similar time period, all in this context of false teaching that had been spreading in the church. And that's essential for us as we're going to dive into 2nd John this morning, as we're going to look at 3rd John and eventually uh, go through 1st John this spring. We have to understand the occasion of why John is writing these things if we're to understand what he's trying to communicate And the context is people who have been going out, who have been teaching false things, particularly about who Jesus is. And John wants to combat that false teaching. So again, 2nd and 3rd John for these next couple weeks are going to do hopefully a good job for introducing some of those topics and things that we're going to see in 1st John this spring. So let's go to the word of the Lord. We're going to be in 2nd John again this morning. It's... uh, page 1025 in your pew bibles if you don't have one feel free to walk to the back and and grab one as i as i turn there so let's hear from the word of the lord in second john the elder to the elect lady and her children whom i love in truth and not only i but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever grace Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that you have spoken to us your truth. We praise you for your son, the light sent into the darkness to redeem us. We worship you, Father, that along with your son, you have sent us your spirit who renews us, who opens our eyes to understand what you have spoken in your word. So help us to be attentive to your voice this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So one of the great challenges of the Christian faith is figuring out how to both care about the unity and mutual love of the church and to care deeply about truth and good theology. At at points, it feels as if we have to choose between one or the other. Either we abandon what we feel to be loving and pursue theological accuracy to the point of breaking fellowship with those we disagree with, Or we pursue love and unity while downplaying the importance of theology and of truth. And of course, it doesn't always have to be that extreme. As Christians, we have to recognize that there are truly peripheral issues where we can have mutual love, where we can have fellowship that's deep and committed within the church, even where there is disagreement on certain topics. But particularly when a doctrine is central, when it strikes at the heart of the gospel, strikes at the heart of of biblical truth, what are we as Christians to do when there is disagreement? Shall we allow the truth to bend for the sake of love? Or should we cease to love for the sake of truth? I think John gives us a surprising answer in 2 John, that caring deeply about truth and caring deeply about mutual love in the church, they're not in contradiction with one another. They go hand in hand. They're necessarily connected to one another. Truth to John, to Scripture, is the foundation of love. And because of this, John places a high importance both on the commandment to love and on the serious work of guarding truth in the church. Second John teaches us that because truth is foundational for mutual love in the church, God's people must guard truth. And if you're taking notes, that's going to be our main point again. Because truth is foundational for mutual love in the church. God's people must guard the truth. So John begins his uh, letter with a typical introduction for a New Testament letter. He introduces himself as the elder, and he addresses his letter to the elect lady and her children. And although some have tried to figure out who this lady is, perhaps it's a woman that's named Electa, the elect lady, people have Uh, tried to figure out all of these uh, different ideas about who this lady might be, I actually think it's best to read 2 John as if it's addressed to a church. The elect lady is a church, and her children are the members of that church, or the house churches that are associated with that larger church. And I think this makes the most sense when we read this and we realize that a lot of the exhortations, the commandments in 2 John, are in the plural. They're not written to you, they're written to you all. And I actually think when the letter ends with uh, the, the children of your elect sister greet you, that it makes the most sense if we're reading it in the context of a church. It's another church that's sending their greeting to the church that John is writing to. And I think it's important for us to understand the message of Second John to keep two things in mind. The first, as I just explained, is that John is writing to a church. That will affect how we read this letter. If we know that he's writing to a group of believers and not just to a single lady. It's also important, as I've already said, that uh, the letter, the occasion for the letter, is that there is false teaching, and he's addressing the threat of false teaching in the church. This this falsehood has been spreading about who Jesus is and what he has done. So we need to keep both of those things in mind if we're going to understand John. He's writing to a church, and he's writing with the occasion of false teaching that has been spreading about Jesus. So right away, John establishes in his introduction the connection between truth and love. And notice how he explains his love for the church in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. 
He loves the church in the truth, along with those who know the truth, and because of truth. Truth is the foundation for mutual love in the church, because love is in truth. Love is by those who know the truth. Love is because of the truth. Even in his blessing in verse 3, he says that the blessing is in truth and love. For John, truth and love are necessarily connected. Instead of truth and love being separable, truth is the foundation for Christian love. I think John Stott says this really, really well. He says, Since Christian love is founded upon Christian truth, we shall not increase the love which exists between us by diminishing the truth which we hold in common. In contemporary movements towards church unity, we must never compromise the very truth on which alone true love and unity depend. Let me read that last sentence again. In contemporary movements toward church unity, we must never compromise the very truth on which alone true love and unity depend. We don't choose between truth and love in the church. We either get both truth and love, or we get neither. We don't get one or the other. We either get them together, or we get neither. Because truth is foundational for mutual love in the church, God's people must guard truth. And John gives us two specific ways in his letter where God's people are to guard truth in the world in this great threat of falsehood. First, God's people are to guard truth by living it as the church. And second, God's people are to guard truth by being vigilant for falsehood. Again, if you're taking notes, those two main points are that God's people are to guard truth by living it as the church, and God's people are to guard truth by being vigilant for falsehood. So let's look together at John's first exhortation in verses 4 through 6. As we see that because truth is foundational for mutual love in the church, God's people must guard truth by living it as the church. In verse 4, John writes, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. John has most likely recently visited this church, and he is encouraged by what he saw, what he observed when he was with them. He saw that they were walking in the truth. And I want you to notice that. They didn't just know the truth. They didn't just assent to the truth intellectually. They were living the truth. They were walking in the truth. Truth is something that's to be lived out, something that is to be matured in. Although we are going to see later in this letter that what we confess to be true and what we believe is also vitally important. After his encouragement to them, he exhorts them to continue walking in the truth, both by obeying God's command to love one another and by loving through obeying God's commands. Now that sentence may be a little confusing. I think we can sum John's message here in verses 5 and 6 up this way, that we obey by loving and we love by obeying. We obey by loving and we love by obeying. So look to verse 5. John exhorts them to continue obeying the command that they have had from the beginning. So what is that command? What is the command that they have had from the beginning? John tells them they are to love one another. Love itself, both love for God and love for our neighbor, love in the church, that is the summation of all of God's commandments. If we are to obey what God has commanded us in every part, we are to love. We are commanded by God to love. 
And although we're commanded elsewhere in Scripture that we're to love our enemies, John's particular focus here in 2 John is love that's in the church, mutual love in the body of Christ. Christians are called to love one another. We obey God by loving. It's important to notice, though, that John parallels this statement in verse 5 by flipping it in verse 6. Look with me, verse 5 and 6, how John flips his statement. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And see how he flips the order here in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. If we were told by God only that we're supposed to love, we could choose what that love looks like. But we can't. We don't have the option to choose what love looks like. The love is the summation of all of God's commandments. It's also fleshed out by God's commandments. We love others by not coveting what is theirs, by not lying to them, by not stealing from them, by not sinning sexually against them in our thoughts and in our actions. Children love their parents by obeying them. Husbands are commanded to love their wives by laying down their lives for them. And the examples in Scripture could go on and on. Our love is lived out through obedience to God's commandments. We love by obeying. And some might respond here uh, that you can't command love, right? Love isn't something you can force. Love is something that has to swell up in us naturally. It's this affection, and if I'm not feeling it, you can't just command me to love someone. But John does. John commands us to love. Love isn't an option for us for just when we're feeling like it in the church. It's not optional. It's good to have affection. It's good to have feelings. It's good to love people in that way, but that's not what love, especially Christian love, should be reduced to. We love other people because God tells us to love, because he enables us to love, and because he directs us how to love. He shows us what love should look like in our actions and in our lives. John is telling the church in the midst of the threat of false teaching that they are to live out the truth through their obedience to God manifested in deep Christian love. Christian love and obedience are a defense against falsehood because it's how Christians grow together in mutual love and in maturity into the truth. I think you can think of it kind of how you would have defense against sickness or an illness. One way that you defend against it, especially during the wintertime when everybody's crammed together and everybody's getting colds and other things like that, is you, you learn to notice the symptoms of sickness. You see someone coughing or sneezing and you're like, okay, I'm not going to go shake that person's hand. And in more serious examples, maybe you quarantine someone to a room. If you have a lot of children and one of them gets sick and you don't want the whole entire family to get sick, you're like, okay, we're going to care for you, but... You know, maybe don't leave your bedroom for a little while as we care for you. But another way that we're supposed to guard against sickness and illness is to have healthy habits ourselves, to promote our own health by eating well, by exercising, by getting enough sleep, by taking your vitamins. When we promote the health of our own body, we're actually guarding it against illness and against sickness. 
So here John is he's encouraging the defense of the church by, encourage, by encouraging healthy habits, by encouraging their growth and maturity, their spiritual health, because when they're spiritually healthy, when they're mature, then they're less susceptible to false teaching. Christian spiritual health and maturity is the first great guard against falsehood. We guard against falsehood when we live out what is true and when we grow together in what is true. If we as a church want to be protected, we must love each other. Let us obey God's commandments together. Let us grow deeply in Christian maturity as we worship and as we pray, as we gather during the week to encourage one another, as we study scripture together, as we serve one another in the church. When we do these things, we are actually growing in our health and we are protected against false teaching. Livingstone Church, God commands you to love. He commands you to love one another. And let's also be careful to love those, even that, those that we disagree with on peripheral issues, even brothers and sisters that are not part of our church. By the way that we speak, the way that we act, we need to love those in the household of faith, even those people that we disagree with on peripheral issues. We are commanded to love by God. It is not optional for us. So we've seen that because truth is foundational for mutual love in the church, we need to, uh, people, God's people should guard truth by living it out as the church as we grow in this spiritual maturity. But John knows that the church must also be able to resist when false teaching comes in, when false teachers want to come through the door and tell you something that is not true about who our Jesus is. And so he gives them a second exhortation. Because truth is foundational for mutual love in the church, God's people must guard truth by being vigilant for falsehood. God's people must guard truth by being vigilant for falsehood. In verse 7, right in the heart of John's letter, he lays out the primary issue that prompted him to write. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, So at the very heart of the issue with those deceivers who have gone out from the church, who have gone out into the world to spread their message is that they deny the humanity of Christ. Just what Jesse was talking to us about in the children's message, that Jesus must be truly human. And that's what they were denying. And we're going to see more about this as we study through 1 John, so I don't need to go into all the nitty-gritty of what this false theology was about. We're going to take a deeper look at that. But what we have to notice is that what they were teaching falsehood about is at the very core of Christian belief. It's at the very heart of the Christian confession. Who is our Savior? Who is Jesus? We must believe rightly when it comes to that. And I think this is a very uh, good, instructive point for us when we try to determine what is central. John is not writing to them about people who are spreading false teaching about just food laws or about opinions about worship music or about how you should school your children. What is at stake is the very nature of who our Savior is. You cannot mess with who our God is, and you cannot mess with who Jesus is. And you can't do that because if you, if you distort who Jesus is, if you mess with the, the person of Jesus, you mess with the work of Jesus. If you change who Jesus is, then you have to change what he has done. If our Savior isn't God, if our Savior isn't God who has taken on human 
flesh, then he could not die in our place as substitute. He could not bear the load of human sin and rise victorious in the resurrection. We should learn from this that what we confess is super important. What we believe to be true as Christians is necessary for us. It's not secondary. Our Christianity doesn't just depend on how we live. It depends on what we confess, what we believe to be true. So if this is also centrally important for John, then how is the church to be vigilant? How are we to be looking out for falsehood? And John again gives us two points. He gives us two ways that we are to be vigilant for falsehood. And the first is that we are to watch ourselves. First, we have to recognize that the issue doesn't always just lie in those who are outside of us. It's easy to say they are the problem. They are the ones who are always wrong. But we need to watch ourselves. We need to look at what we believe, that we don't drift away from the truth. Look with me at verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Through the work and through the teaching of the apostles and through their own growth in maturity, the church that John is writing to has been running the race. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, they are to run the race so that they would obtain the prize. But as they run the race, as they grow in their Christian faith and in maturity, they must do so grounded in the basics of the faith. You cannot leave that. Look at verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So John is saying that you can't go on ahead. You can't grow in Christian faith and grow in maturity if you leave behind the basics. You can't do that. When I was young, my family would often go on hikes. Um, We still love hiking, if any of you no, Lexi and I like to go on hikes during the summer, but I grew up doing this a lot. There was a, a trail that was next to our house in Milton. It was actually a block away, the Ice Age Trail, if some of you have heard of it, one of the national scenic trails. Cuts up from Door County and weaves around the state of Wisconsin. I don't remember exactly where it ends. Uh, but there is a, a county park just outside of our, our town called, called Storrs Lake. There's a set of lakes there, and the trail, the Ice Age Trail, would cut through the forest and along the lake uh, out at Storrs Lake. And we would go walking there as a family. We'd often do these short day hikes. And when we were walking, uh, my parents would always have a rule for us when we were very young that we weren't allowed to walk so far ahead that we couldn't turn around and still see our parents. We always had to be in sight with them, right? And if we went around a corner and we lost sight of them, we had to wait until they would catch up. And also when I was growing up, we had this black lab named Libby, which is short for Liberty because she was born on the 4th of July, so I guess you got to go with a name like that. And Libby was this fast black lab, and she would run back and forth between the front group, who was usually me and a couple of my brothers because we liked to hike really fast, and we were probably running half the time anyway. And she would run, run up to us, and she would do a circle around us, and then she'd sprint all the way back to my parents. And so you knew that if you were hiking, if you were walking along the trail, and this dog slobbering, just comes sprinting up to you, makes a circle around you and runs back, you know that you are still close to your parents. So that was one of the ways that we kept track of the fact that we weren't getting lost. But similarly, for, for Christians, as we grow in the truth, as we walk 
this Christian life, we should never go on ahead and lose sight of the truth that keeps us safe. We should never lose sight of that which grounds us and protects us. Just like children who should never lose sight of their parents when they're hiking. And as you grow in your faith, as you engage in the study of of Scripture, engage your mind as we should, um, just be careful. Watch yourself. I think there are some people who want to be so intellectual about their faith. They want to be intellectual and learn new things that they end up actually abandoning the basics. They end up abandoning what the things that they once held close. So don't, don't go beyond the basics of the faith. We should meditate on them. We should chew on the truth of the incarnation. We should ponder that God sent his son into the world, that Jesus became a man. We should ponder why that's so good for us. We should study Jesus' life, his pre-existence. We should study his death and his resurrection. We should ponder his ascension, that Jesus Christ is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, that he's interceding for us. Think about that for a moment, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for you. Is that not incredible? Think that from heaven, Jesus is going to return again as a victorious king. That he's going to come, he's going to judge the living and the dead. In the study of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in our study of God, there's, there's more than we could study in a lifetime. Let's not go beyond that. Let's not think that we can ascend to some higher level of Christian thinking and lose what we believe about our Savior Study the truth. Read, read from your Bible. Read from Scripture. Read from church history. Read from those people that have defended the faith over the centuries. Read the Christian creeds. Read the confessions. Read those things that were written to defend the church against falsehood, particularly false teaching about Jesus, which was so commonly a problem in the early church, which is why those creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, why those were written, they were written to defend the truth. Study your faith. Because only when you grow in Christian maturity uh, will you really be defended against false doctrine. And you'll only grow in, in Christian maturity as far as you are rooted in the truth about Christ. Like a tree that sinks its roots deeply into good soil and gets its nourishment there. We need to be rooted deeply in the truth about who our Lord Jesus Christ is. So watch yourself. Those who don't abide in the teaching of Christ do not have God, as John said. That's a sobering warning. Those who do not abide in the teaching of Christ do not have God. Watch yourself. Be wary for the teaching that you are bringing in. Be wary about how you grow in your faith. Don't become unrooted from Christ. So to be vigilant for falsehood, we first need to watch ourselves, lest we drift away from the truth. But we also have to be aware of the external threat of false teaching, those who might come in and teach us false things. And John gives directions for what to do if someone comes into the church and brings their false teaching. Look to verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the correct teaching about Christ, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wickedness. John directs them not to even welcome or greet the one who teaches false things about Jesus. And this may seem really harsh. You might look at that and say, that's not loving. That's not how Christian love is supposed to be. But this type of protection in the church is actually necessary. 
we have to recognize he's not just talking about someone who simply believes something false about Jesus. He's not talking about someone that's young in the faith, someone that's maybe not a Christian who is asking questions, someone who wants to go and understand, but maybe they don't have all the pieces fit together. That's not, that's not who John is talking about. John is particularly warning about people who are coming in and who are teaching and are spreading falsehood. Uh, one of my professors for a church history class I took, when we were actually studying the early Christian creeds and we were talking about all the heretics, something I, I love talking about for some odd reason, uh, I love studying the heretics, but one of my professors, he helpfully said that it's not just believing or saying something false that makes you a heretic. Because if that was the case, we'd probably all be heretics at some point, right? So it's not just believing something that's false and not even just simply slipping up and saying something that's false about Jesus. So don't, don't, don't be too afraid about that. He said that a heretic is someone that stubbornly digs in their heels, someone that resists correction, and someone that spreads false teaching, someone that causes other Christians to slip and to fall. That is what makes someone a heretic, not just saying something false. You're a false teacher if you're spreading it, if you're harming the flock of God. And as I said, John directs them. He says to not receive one of those teachers into your house. And when he's talking about the house there, remember, he's writing to a church. He's not just writing to a lady. When he says, don't invite them into your house, he's talking about their church building. He's talking about their house church. It was probably a house church, the house where they met and where they would receive teaching, where they would fellowship together, where they would take the Lord's Supper together. He's saying, don't let someone into the church. Don't let a wolf into the church to lead astray the flock. Don't let them into the family of God to harm the children. So he's not just saying, don't interact with false teachers. Don't try to pull them back to the truth. What he's talking about is protecting the church, is guarding it from those who would come in and teach something that's false. For those of you who have children, and for those of you who were children, which I think is all of us, you know that good parents don't just leave their kids unattended in their house with a stranger that they've never met before. You don't just bring someone into your house and leave them unattended with your children. That's foolish. You just don't do that. But how much should we also, in the family of God and in the church, protect those who are a part of our family by not just letting anybody come in and teach? One of the reasons that our denomination has such strict standards for those who would be licensed to preach and those who'd be ordained is, is this very reason. If some of you were at our presbytery meeting a couple of weeks ago and you got to witness some of those licensure exams, people getting drilled on, on what theory of the atonement is, is given in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and all these seemingly out there questions, they're, they're testing their understanding of scripture. Licensure and ordination, it's not just so that these guys get cool titles and that they get some honor. We have that as a part of our church because we want to protect what is taught. We think it's that important that the people who are going to teach the congregation should know the truth. They should be able to explain the truth and teach scripture well. You can't just let someone come in and teach if they're going to lead astray the flock. And outside of Sunday mornings, you guys should all be careful who you learn from. It's so easy today to just go on the internet if you have a question and to just Google your question about scripture. But there are so many places that teach you false things. If you're unsure, if you don't know what good resources are, talk to someone who knows. Talk to someone who understands what's, what's true. Maybe where good, good websites to go to. 
We have to be discerning where we're getting our information from as Christians. We can't just let anything come into our mind. That's too dangerous. And also, you have to test everything that you hear against Scripture. You have to test everything against the Word of God, which means that you need to know Scripture. How can you test what you hear against the truth of the Bible if you aren't reading it, if you're not meditating on it, if you're not taking in sermons and letting them come into your heart and and revive you and, and make you alive in God's truth and God's word. We have to know scripture if we're actually going to be defended against what is false. We have to be vigilant for the teaching that is outside of us that comes in. We have to be wary of what comes into our heart. We live in a world with many who teach what's false, so watch yourself lest you drift away and be aware of what external threats might be teaching you false things. Be careful where you learn. John ends his letter uh, with a brief closing. He says that he wants to come and he wants to visit them again. It's better for him to teach them face to face than just for him to write letters to them, that their joy would be shared. And he even sends greeting again from that other church, from the, the, the like sister and her children who are sending uh, this church her greeting. John's desire for this church is their health for their growth in the faith, that they would be kept safe from what is false. John is showing his love for this congregation. He cares for them. He doesn't want them to be led astray. Because truth is foundational for mutual love in the church, God's people must guard truth by living it out as the church and by being vigilant for what is false. Truth is necessary for love, particularly truth about who our Lord Jesus Christ is. Christ is the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever in verse 2. Because our Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Without Christ, we don't have truth. And without truth, we don't have love. If you deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, you deny the great manifestation of God's love for us in sending his only son for us. The John who wrote Second John is also the John who wrote the Gospel of John. He's the one who records Jesus' words in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's the same John that wrote in 1 John 4.8-11, anyone who does not love should... Sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The greatest motivation for Christian love is not just truth in general but the truth that Christ himself came into the world taking on flesh to die in our place. There can be many different motivations for denying the basic truths about Christ. If for the sake of tolerance or inclusivity or even love toward our non-Christian neighbor, for those reasons Christians are willing to give up the long-held truths about Christianity, you're not actually left with a religion that's more loving. In fact, you're left with a religion that's devoid of both hope and love. For you deny the truly hope-giving, 
love-displaying, saving action of our God in Christ. Without the truth of Christ, there is not actually hope for our non-Christian neighbor. We've done them no good by denying Christ in the name of love. We've done them no good. But if indeed Christ has come in the flesh, which he has, if indeed Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, died, was buried, yet rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead, then we truly have good news to proclaim to our neighbor. Then we actually have good news to proclaim to the world. Then we truly have the motivation and the power in the spirit to love our brothers and sisters in the church. Then we really can love our God. Then we really can worship him as our God. Let us always defend and confess the heart of what we believe. For the Christian truth and love are never separate. They always go hand in hand. So in light of that, let's actually confess together the Apostles' Creed. It's found in page uh, 121 of your songbooks. The Apostles' Creed has been confessed by believers for around 1,800 years in the church, defending the church against what is false, particularly about who our Savior Jesus Christ is. Let's confess this together. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son to take on flesh, to live a righteous life on our behalf, to die on the cross in our place, and to rise again from the dead. Help us to be vigilant, Lord, as we guard the truth. Help us to never lose sight of your Son. Thank you for the guidance you have given us in Second John to preserve us in the truth. We know that we cannot persevere on our own. So we ask that by your spirit, you would strengthen and mature us. Hold us fast, God, and protect us, Father. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.